Acts chapter 4, 13 through 22. Continue to look at the fallout from the healing of the lame man at the temple as we go through this chapter. And uh, we'll pray and then we'll read the text. Our Father, we ask that you make us like the prophet Jeremiah who when he stopped speaking in your name, there was in his heart a burning fire shut up in his bones, and he was weary of holding it in. May we learn in the school of the apostles. They said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Lord, may we see and hear this morning. For if we are to speak, we must first know of that which we speak. Will you make yourself known to us through your word, the testimony of your apostles, and nourish our faith so that we may be adorned with the fruits which bring glory and honor to your name and joy to we, your people. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word, Acts 4, 13 through 22. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. You know the kid's song, or at least I sang it when I was a kid. Adults could sing it. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Uh, As good Calvinists especially maybe in the cage stage. You remember that stage when you'd been better, it'd be better for you and the world if you were in a cage. <laughs> you may have objected to this whole, the whole idea, I have decided to follow Jesus. We don't decide, God declares before the foundation of the world. But as we mature in our understanding of the doctrines of grace, we we begin to see again and remember that decision really is part of the gospel call. We must decide to follow Jesus. 
Even Joshua said it back in Joshua 24. I think we had this on our wall as a kid. I don't know if it's still in my parents' house or not, but choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Of course, we understand that the proper decision is impossible without the working of the Holy Spirit, regenerating our hearts to new life. But at the end of the day, each of us is responsible to, the answer, to answer the question, what will I do with Jesus of Nazareth? This is a, a back-to-the-basics kind of sermon, because this text points us to the most basic of Christian realities, that God calls every man everywhere to repent, to believe on Jesus, and to take up our cross and to follow him. And what, what will we do with that message? How will we decide? Will we believe the message, and upon believing it, will we proclaim it? Uh, we'll look at the text under four headings, four alliterated headings. I feel like I'm copying Dr. Ferguson or something. Response, reason, resistance, and resolve. Response, reason, resistance, and resolve. So first, response. Christianity calls for a response. The Christian message requires a response. Uh, we make a mistake when we take Acts to be kind of the end-all, be-all blueprint of the church, uh, particularly when it comes to making sort of one-to-one deductions on the form of Christianity, like they met in houses, therefore we must meet in houses. <laughs> they had apostles, therefore we must have apostles. That said, if we want to learn the basic content of our faith and understand the history and the foundation of our faith, then Acts is certainly one of the first places we'll turn in the Bible. It pays to keep in mind Luke's response, or his, his purpose statement, Luke's purpose statement at the beginning of Luke. Because as you recall, Luke and Acts are, are really the same book. Two, two, part A and Part B of the same history. Part A is the history of Jesus, and Part B is the history of the, the first century church. So his purpose statement at the very beginning of Luke says, verses 1 through 4, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught so luke's objective is to compile a narrative a historical narrative and his purpose he says is that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. That also applies to the book of Acts. That's his purpose. The driving force behind the narrative of Acts is that we would have certainty. And, and certainty, so far, I believe the central verse of what we've studied so far is Acts 2.36, that God has made Jesus of Nazareth both, both Lord and Christ. That's what Luke has been trying to prove this whole time. God has made Jesus of Nazareth both Lord and Christ. And likewise, now in this context, Peter has just proclaimed in verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
claims like that, that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord in Christ and that there's no other name by which we must be saved, those require a response. In this story, the Jewish leaders are forced into a response. What will they do with Jesus? What will they do with these these men who, who keep testifying about him in the temple, no less? What will they do with the signs that accompany their testimony? Verse 16, what shall we do with these men? <laughs> For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The question, what shall we do with these men, is something we have to ask as well. Uh, in truth, I think the temple leaders already made up their minds what they would like to have done with these men. Uh, they were really asking probably more like, what can we do to these men? But Luke's account, assuming that it is indeed inspired, infallible scriptural narrative, and it is, it's the Holy Spirit's perspective on history, this account forces us into the same question. What are we going to do with Jesus? And what are we going to do with these men he's appointed as apostles? And what are we going to do with their message and their miracles? Likewise, Peter and John call on them to make up their own mind. In verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, for us to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You, you, you decide. Is what we say right? Will you listen to God or will you listen to your own self and do what's right in your own eyes? Notice he doesn't leave the door open for them uh, of uh, you decide whether or not we're from God. That's not up to them. That door is closed. He says you decide whether... We should listen to God or to you. Now, the hardened response of the Jewish leaders is contrasted against the response of the people in verse 21. All were praising God for what had happened, it says. Now, this doesn't mean that every person there was perhaps a, a redeemed, born-again Christian, though. I think most of them probably were in that circumstance, but it is possible to love the miraculous works of God and not love God and not see our lives submitted to His Lordship. But in general, people were taking the sign of healing as a sign of God that He was working in and through Christ's apostles. This name of Jesus of Nazareth is a name worth believing in. So the Christian message demands a response. We can believe it, we can reject it, or worst of all, we can ignore it or change it. But it requires a response. We, we, we cannot remain neutral on Jesus Christ. No one can. But why would anyone want to reject the Christian faith? Uh, it's not pictured this way, but truly... It is a faith based on history, on fact, on reasonableness. It is the most reasonable faith. Why would we not believe it? Why would anyone not want to believe it? Which leads us to our second uh, heading, which is reason. Christianity is reasonable. 
we're accustomed to phrases like uh, blind faith, taking a leap of faith as though faith were this sort of just ignorant trust without any basis. The word faith at its most simple root means to believe. To believe that it's true. And we can believe things without having a solid footing for those beliefs. While we recognize it's impossible as flawed humans to reason our way to God, we also must affirm that our faith is reasonable. Luke's narrative is more than a nice story. It's carefully crafted to make a point. He gives facts and historical details that corroborate the Christian message. So I want to identify three historical facts that Luke lays out for us. The first historical fact is that the apostles were with Jesus. The apostles were with Jesus. Luke says in verse 13 that the Jewish leaders were astonished at the boldness of Peter and John. And despite the fact that they were uneducated, common men, that they were unschooled. They they were definitely not trained like these temple men, these Jewish leaders. They were simple fishermen and yet they were astonished and they saw he, they had been with Jesus. I saw repeatedly through my study that people were making this application. The boldness and eloquence of the apostles made it obvious they had been with Jesus. Now, it's, is it obvious to people that you have been spending time with Jesus? Yeah, there's some truth there, I think. But, but I think Luke's point is more historical. Essential to the Christian message is the legitimacy of the apostolic testimony. Luke wants the reader to know just how connected these men were with Jesus, that they had been with Jesus. This whole story of the healing of the lame man has been in part a testimony of their legitimacy and their authority in Christ as representatives of the king. You can imagine Theophilus reading this account for the first time. Would he have sat down and read that verse and thought to himself, uh, can people tell if I've been with Jesus? I don't, I don't think that's what he would have been thinking. More likely, he would have felt a sense of confirmation. Praise the Lord, the apostolic testimony has so much validation. Who can deny their credibility? Perhaps this, the, the, this interpretation isn't as spiritual, but it is more useful. And it fits with Luke's purpose statement that you may have confidence concerning the things you have been taught. Now the Apostle John makes this claim about apostleship in 1 John 4, 5, and 6. He says, They, the other teachers, they are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We, that is the apostles, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now it all hinges on the apostolic witness. Not modern apostles, not, not people with the gift of apostle, not a, a series of men who can claim to train, tra- trace their lineage back to an apostle. But the apostles, 
the testimony of the original personally commissioned witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the boundary lines of orthodoxy are drawn by the apostles. Whoever listens to them is from God. Whoever does not is of the world. By this we know the spirit of truth and error. So that's the first historical fact, that it's, it's, it's central that these apostles were with Jesus. Second historical fact, the lame man was indeed healed. The only way around this fact is to deny that Acts is an inspired scripture, to bring into question the validity of the text itself. Luke gives so much supporting evidence here. Uh, a whole city was made aware of the miracle. It, it was not done in a corner. The Jewish leaders say in verse 16, it is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. And this was a, a sign designed to be very public by God. This was at the temple, a man who was lame from birth, 40 years old, so he'd been there for decades. Everyone who went in the temple knew this man. He was the one who was healed. This is very public. So the lame man was healed. He was healed by the apostles through the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And this cannot be denied. So that's the second historical fact, that the lame man was indeed healed. The third one is that the apostles were under divine commission. Verse 19, But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That verse is packed. There's so much in there, in the phrasing, in the tone, the conviction of the statement, the words themselves. Uh, this is absolute conviction on the behalf of Peter and John. That They're almost mocking these men who are authorities in the temple. And they set up a black and white contrast between you listen to them or you listen to God. The, the Jewish leaders surely believed that they spoke for God. And in a sense, they did as, as men who sat on the seat of Moses. Yet Peter and John say, shall we listen to you or to God? The apostles here, I think, are essentially... This is a historical shift. They're essentially proclaiming the changing of the guard. We cannot stop preaching in the name of Jesus because to do so would be to disregard the commission of God in our lives. We must speak, and you decide if you want to come along or not. This changing of the guard is essential to Christianity. No longer is the faith bound up in a location, uh, to, to sacrifices, to a, an inadequate high priesthood. The, these things were all a shadow of the things to come, but the substance has arrived. The sacrifice, the high priest, the temple, they've all arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And these apostles were commissioned to testify to that fact. The historicity and the factual nature of the Christian message makes it the most reasonable faith. If we're to believe Scripture, that the facts are undeniable if we'll listen. They force us into the conclusion that God has made Jesus of Nazareth both, both Lord and Christ and 
his apostles have spoken that for us and recorded that for us. I think that's where the battle really is in our day, is over the scriptures. Are the scriptures true? Is Luke's account historical fact? I don't understand how people can pick and choose from the Bible because either they aren't reading it, they're not reading it holistically, or they're reading it with blinders on, which is true, but the Bible is an insane book. (laughs) It's crazy, unless it's true. It should be cast off entirely or accepted as a whole. The Bible is is so consistent, so Christ-focused, and if we're honest, it, it just makes claims that are so narrow and wild that either they have to be true or insane. So if we're going to receive it, we're left with the plain, undeniable conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth has been made both Lord and Christ. Why then do so many smart people reject it? Why do these educated men, these spiritual men, the men with the most knowledge, hate the gospel of Jesus Christ? And these simple fishermen believe it. Well, the answer is in anthropology, specifically a biblical anthropology. And that leads us to our um, third uh, heading here, resistance. Christianity provokes resistance. So the Bible tells us about our anthropology. It tells us that as creatures we're made in the image of God and thus have the capacity for reason, to think. But it also tells us that because of the fall, the image of God has been corrupted and that corruption in us extends to every part of our being, our physicality, our our mental capacities, our wills, our spiritual lives, we are totally corrupt. We are also blinded, blinded by deceit. Listen to Paul. Paul describes the pre-Christian life in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's pre-redemption status for every human being who's ever lived. Also, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He's saying they crucified him because they did not understand the truth. They were blinded to the truth. He goes on in verse 14 of the same chapter. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he does not, is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
So how could these leaders be so hard-hearted, even though they understand so much? It's because of that, that biblical anthropology. It tells us the result of their blindness, of their deadness in sin, is resistance. We have to keep this in mind as we engage with those in the world and we remember what, what Jesus said in John fifteen, eighteen through 20 that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. It gets proved out here. They hated Jesus. These men of the temple hated Jesus, and now they hate his apostles. Therefore, they're adamant. It says in 18, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Get, get it out of here. We want nothing of this Jesus. We can't expect resistance as we proclaim Christ. In fact, we should. Now, if we're teaching about a false Christ, the Christ of our imaginations, the Christ that looks like us and affirms all our sins then we're fine. We won't be persecuted for that. But if we preach the Christ of the Bible, the Christ who is Lord over every heart, the Christ who is the exclusive Savior of the world, then we'll start to feel the pressure. Sometimes I I think about how little resistance we have in our own setting, in our own country. that lack of resistance can actually make it harder to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We have it so good, and it is good. I had a friend in seminary say once, "It's not you shouldn't shouldn't be afraid to pray for persecution." I don't think that's quite accurate. I think we pray for blessing, but we should be aware of the dangers of blessing that it can make us apathetic and and flabby. So it is good that we have such freedom, freedom to worship, to speak, and to live as Christians. But I also want to challenge us with another angle from the other side. That I wonder to what degree our sense of resistance is low, not due to the general amicability of our nation to Christianity, but rather to our silence. Would we encounter more resistance if we spoke up? If we really proclaimed the true Christ as though we were ambassadors of the king of the universe, if we really had more fear of the Lord than the fear of man? I can't look into your heart and say that's the case for you, but I can look into mine and say it is the case for me. Self-preservation is far more a factor in my own life than I would like to admit. So by way of exhortation, I just want to remind us of what the writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 13, 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. There's plenty of reproach to be had if we will go outside the camp with him. We can expect resistance, but we do not fear it. for, For if we're cast outside of the camp, there we will find happiness because there we will find Christ. And do not lose heart in the face of opposition. If the soil you're called to tilled is difficult, do not lose heart. And that leads us to our fourth heading, which is resolve. Christianity requires and supplies resolve. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to rescue an animal that's stuck. Uh, They freak out. They try to chomp your fingers. They try to get away. And they hurt themselves more in the process of trying to get away from you than if they realized what you were trying to do. Uh, and I think it's like that to, to bear witness to Jesus in the world, to worldly people. It's a weird dichotomy, loving our enemies. It's like trying to save a sinking ship of pirates who are at the same time shooting bullets at you. But remember and take great comfort in the fact that it's not up to us to convince the world to listen to Christ. We, we can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. And honestly, I think that's my default assumption is to either nice someone into the kingdom of God or, love, or, or argue them into the kingdom of God. If I can A, show people that I'm relatively normal and not a fanatical nut job, that's one goal for me and my default. And B, if I can prove the reasonableness of my my position, then they will understand, then they will believe. I can coax them into understanding. The apostles, by contrast to me, are perfectly willing to be seen as fanatical nut jobs. And they, they simply preach the facts of the faith without wavering and leave the ball in their court. You notice what they said, you must judge... Many, many believed in those days and others did not, but proclamation, not results, was their focus. Scattering seed, not germination. Resilience and resolve grows together with the conviction that if God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we see on display here as Christ is working through and in his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're absolutely convinced that God is on their side. Verse 19 again, whether it's right on the side of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. God is on their side, not their enemy's side. And they're absolutely sure of that. He, he's for sure on the side of proclaiming far and wide the name of Jesus Christ, whatever these leaders think of that idea. So this passage serves us really so well as we're learning to bear witness to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, it, It does really, as all of Acts does, help us to be certain of the things that we have been taught. It gives us a plain history of facts that undergird the testimony of the apostles. And it gives us an example, an example of their boldness. 
Don't, don't think I'm saying that we're going to achieve the boldness level of Peter and John in the temple. I'm not saying that, but it, they are an example to us. And we have their testimony that God is on the side of Jesus. So let's proclaim him with boldness, whatever the opposition, knowing that whatever comes against us, God's gospel of Jesus Christ is true, it's historical, it's rational, and it's saving. Let's be resolved to press into the scattering of that gospel seed. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. My cross I'll carry till Jesus I see. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. Amen.